From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. As a teenager, he was sent to prison for life without the chance of parole. Now, 24 years later, Curtis Brooks is a free man. I really just have to take in the scenery as we drive. I'll worry about everything else later. Why he was released and the ongoing debate about juvenile sentencing. Then, it's getting easier to seal criminal records in Colorado. The impact that could have for people struggling to overcome their past. Plus, perspective on life in Southern Colorado from Peter Roper, who just retired after nearly 30 years with the Pueblo Chieftain. From the impact of legal pot to politics. This isn't Denver, this isn't Boulder. Um, There's a conservative streak here that's always been here. And from Colorado to Chile, the musical soundscapes of Kiltro. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The last few days have been a whirlwind for a man just released Monday from prison. Curtis Brooks was jailed at the age of 15 for his part in a robbery-turned-murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. 24 years later, he stepped out of prison a free man. His release is the culmination of years of legal work and lobbying by a team of supporters. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been following the case over those years. Andrea, welcome. Thanks. Who is Curtis Brooks? Why did he end up behind bars in the first place? Curtis Brooks is now 39 years old. He was involved in a 1995 robbery that killed a man named Christopher Ramos. Brooks had been at a mall and saw some boys he knew, and at some point they hatched a plan to steal a car. The plan went awry, and one of the kids, not Brooks, fired a shot that killed Ramos. Brooks was convicted of first-degree murder, which at the time meant an automatic sentence of life without parole. And why was he released? In December, then-Governor John Hickenlooper granted him clemency for what he called extraordinary rehabilitation. Brooks had taken college courses in prison and learned several languages, including Spanish and Japanese. He had a stellar record in prison. And Hickenlooper pointed out that Brooks hadn't been the one to kill Ramos. His decision also referred to a 2012 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that found these sentences of life without parole for juveniles uh, are unconstitutional. You went to the Arkansas Valley Correctional Center in southeast Colorado Monday to witness Brooks' release. Tell us about that. One of Brooks' attorneys and others who'd pushed for his release were in the front lobby of the prison. They'd brought a pair of shorts and a shirt that were taken back for Brooks to change into. He's only worn prison clothes for the last 24 years. When he walked into the lobby, there was a collective cheer, lots of hugging, and then he stepped outside a free man for the first time since he was 15 years old. I asked him if he was nervous. I dealt with the nerves probably two or three days ago, and then yesterday was, it just felt surreal. And today, I've just been ready. Uh, I'm ready to go. And what about the victim, Christopher Ramos? Did Brooks express any remorse for the killing? Brooks told me he hasn't forgotten why he was put in prison in the first place and said he'd never forget Christopher Ramos. People might think that I've done 24 years and now I'm I'm being released. So, you know, I'm moving on from this situation. But this is something that I have to carry with me every day. I understand the victim's family has not been happy about the decision to release Brooks. 
That's right. When Hick and Looper granted him clemency, the Ramos family voiced deep di- displeasure with the decision. The district attorney's office in Arapahoe County quoted them as saying, Christopher did nothing to have his life taken, and he does not get a second chance at life. There were people there to greet Brooks, um, and they were also going to drive him to Denver. Who were the people who were there? One was a Maryland state senator, Joanne Benson. She was Brooks' principal in Maryland when he was a boy before he moved to Colorado. She's been following the case for years. And there was attorney, Holland Hoskins, who's dedicated a huge amount of time to getting Brooks out. She was his original attorney at his trial and says she never got over Brooks' sentence. It's been 24 years since Curtis was incarcerated as a 15-year-old and incarcerated and told that he was going to die in prison uh, for a murder that he did not commit, not being the shooter. And we didn't know if this day was going to happen, but uh, we are all so happy to be here to get Curtis and to welcome him back into society. Then there was this interesting moment when Hoskins placed a call to one of the jurors in Brooks' case from decades ago. Bruce Groday has said he deeply regrets the jury's decision and says a lot of the details in the case weren't disclosed at the original trial. Groday's also been one of Brooks' chief defenders. Hi, this is Bruce. Hello? Hello, is this Kurt? <laughs> yes, it is. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great and standing outside the prison right now. They just released me. Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah, that is great. Grodet's promised to teach Brooks golf when he's released, something Brooks has always wanted to try. Mm. And what about others like Brooks sentenced to life without parole when they were young? Where are they? Many have been resentenced and released or granted clemency, but attorney Holland Hoskins says there are still lots of other juveniles like him serving life without parole in Colorado and across the country. They're still in prison, and that's despite the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in 2012. There are a lot of juveniles serving life without parole, and the U.S. Supreme Court has said those sentences are absolutely unconstitutional, cruel and unusual punishment. And Curtis is going to be a shining example of how these juveniles can rehabilitate themselves. Now, Hoskins is convinced Brooks can make a successful life for himself outside of prison. Of course, there are huge challenges. You have to remember Brooks and others like him have grown up in prison. Many have never driven a car, never had a job or paid rent. Where did Brooks go when he walked out of prison? Well, he got in a car with the folks who picked him up, and they drove to Denver. They made a quick pit stop at a burger place in Pueblo where Brooks had his first non-prison meal, burger and fries. In the car, he fiddled with the iPhone the group brought him. He hasn't had a lot of experience with technology. And, of course, it's changed exponentially since 1995. But Brooks said mostly he just enjoyed looking out of the car window. I'm a scenery person, so... You know, I've, I spent a little bit of time playing with the phone, but I, I really just have to take in the scenery as we drive. I'll worry about everything else later. Then they headed on to Denver. Hoskins had an event Tuesday to celebrate Brooks's release. And where does Brooks go next? So he'll go to Maryland, where he'll serve out his parole. He has family there, including his grandmother and some siblings. His grandmother says she's planted flowers for him in her garden. 
State Senator Benson got him a job with an education coalition, and he hopes to talk to kids about his past experience. He has a big group of people who've joined together and say they'll help him in Maryland. And and then it'll be up to him to create a new life for himself. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks. That's CPR's Andrea Dukakis on Curtis Brooks, who was released from prison Monday. He's 39 years old and has been incarcerated since he was 15. He was granted clemency by former Governor John Hickenlooper last December. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's getting easier to seal criminal records in Colorado, which could help people who were convicted for low-level crimes around cannabis before it became legal. CPR's Anne-Marie Awad met two people in Colorado recently who struggled with getting past records sealed and moving on with their lives. Anne-Marie hosts On Something, CPR's new podcast about life after cannabis legalization. Hi, Anne-Marie. Good morning. So there's a new state law that speaks directly to drug crimes, among other things. What does it do? Well, so there's actually like a, a a pile of recent state laws that passed that pertain to this specifically. The one that speaks specifically to marijuana convictions is the 2019 Sunset Review of the Marijuana Regulations. Um, this kind of reduces the waiting period for sealing a record if you've got a felony that's drug related. Um, and then there's another piece of legislation. This is the one that we kind of call out specifically in the episode. Um, this one does not mention marijuana specifically. It's much more general. Um, and this expands the eligibility for record sealing. It makes it a lot easier for people. Um, it shortens these waiting periods. So in a lot of cases, these were like five to 10 waiting periods, uh, five to 10 year waiting periods after you were convicted, serve your sentence and everything like that. Um, now a lot of those waiting periods are reduced to one to three years. Um, it uh, it's also at times in court in Colorado, sometimes people waive their right to seal a regu- uh, conviction later on as part of a plea deal. Um, it makes it now so that's not required. And uh, there are a couple of other laws that also help people in this situation. Um, there's one that prohibits colleges from pulling criminal records from applicants. This is actually a really big deal um, for one of the characters in our story who was in school when she was arrested. Um, if you are a felon, especially for a drug-related offense, uh, you can be ineligible for federal financial aid. Um, so this makes a really big difference. And then uh, there is another piece of legislation that allows people to petition to vacate guilty pleas from their record because a lot of cases you can um, seal a conviction or you can get rid of a conviction on your record, um, but the guilty plea can remain and that can have consequences for folks down the road as well. And who are the two folks that you've met who struggled with this? Right. So Casey Denolf, um, the the interesting thing to point out is that both of our characters just by pure kismet were 19 when they were arrested. Um, so Casey was 19 when she was arrested. She pled down a felony marijuana cultivation charge. This is because uh, DPD officers busted into her apartment and found that she was growing some plants. This is back before recreational weed was legal. Um, so she pled that down to a misdemeanor marijuana paraphernalia charge. And she had to go to nine months of drug court. Um, she had to be on probation. And 
you know, after that, she had a really hard time finding work. And uh, at the time, the only industry that would really hire somebody with that type of conviction was the medical marijuana industry. So that's where she's at. Our other character is Michael Diaz Rivera. He was also 19 when he uh, was arrested in Colorado Springs. Very different arrest experience. Um, And he says there were about two sandwich baggies of weed in his trunk when he was pulled over by cops. Um, He pled down his charge. He originally was picked up for felony, I believe, distribution charge, um, pled that down to felony possession. And that's a big difference. One of these folks had a misdemeanor, one had a felony. Um, Since that time, he's paid a big fine. He was required to do work release. He went to college and got a mentor. And he started speaking to kids about his experience in the criminal justice system. Um, There is a big turning point for him kind of when he was going through all of this. Um, He was able to go to this academic conference in Texas. And he was able to see people like him who were out there kind of leading and succeeding. And that was brand new for him. But it was cool for me to see so many Black students and brown students just dressed to impress. I had grown up and I didn't see that too often. And often I didn't have, like, I grew up, most of my friends were black and brown. But not a lot of us were, spent a lot of time talking about our future goals and stuff. So he comes back from his conference. He's all fired up. But then, like, this is the point in his life when that felony conviction starts to really present some obstacles. What happened? So he uh, he moves to Denver after that. He uh, comes to Metro State University to finish a four-year degree. But he has a lot of problems finding an apartment because... Um, you know, as a lot of renters out there probably know, a criminal background check is pretty much part of the deal nowadays. Um, And even when he was pretty honest and forthcoming about the fact that he had a felony conviction. I thought I was a professional now. I thought I was out of college. I thought I had done what I needed to pay back my debt to society. But still, society wasn't trying to allow me to where I wanted to be. So that's Michael reacting to this really heartbreaking situation where, you know, he finishes school, he gets hired for like something like his dream job, right? He gets a para job as a teacher's assistant in a classroom. And two days into it, they pull him out and they say, you know, we have to actually let you go. It was against protocol for us to hire you in the first place. Mm. So has Michael tried to seal his records or even get it expunged? Yeah. So he did about a year ago. This was well before all of these recent laws were passed that kind of streamlined the process. So at the time, he wasn't eligible because he had a felony conviction. But now he might be. And I imagine some people would say that even this new law is an imperfect solution. Um, I know when Colorado legalized, it was cautious around some of the regulations because it was first. Have other states handled this differently who have legalized later? For sure. Um, The big example that we kind of point to in our episode is California. Um, They're pretty well known for passing a uh, legalization ballot measure that included sort of an automatic Uh, program that would pick these folks out who had cases that would be eligible for expungement and just do it for them. Because right now it could be a lot of paperwork in some other states. Um, Pennsylvania has a similar program. I believe Massachusetts has a similar program. Illinois, which just legalized only a few weeks ago, has a pretty aggressive program. I think the last thing I read was something like 800,000 people there would be eligible to have uh, charges dismissed. Okay, thanks, Anne-Marie. We've got about 30 seconds. Remind us about On Something. Um, On Something is available wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review and subscribe. We also have a newsletter for those weeks where you are just missing us so much, like next week. (laughs) Um, And that's full of a lot of supplemental fun reading that... uh, 
you know, if you if the episodes ignite your curiosity, there's more where that came from. Thank you. Of course. CPR's Anne-Marie Awad joining us to talk about Colorado making it easier to seal criminal records and how that relates to marijuana before it was legalized. Next month, a new law in Colorado clears the way for public consumption of marijuana in licensed hospitality spaces. We're talking about places like tasting rooms and cannabis bus tours. Until now, the air around this has been, well, a little cloudy. Colorado Matters first profiled one of the hospitality companies, My420 Tours, last summer. Here's CPR's Alexandra McMahon and Andrea Dukakis. So when it's finally time to head outside, our two tour guides lead us to a giant white limo bus. And there's no signage or logos on the bus, nothing about it that would hint at what 27 people are about to do inside. People just start lighting up right away when they get inside. Well, first the tour guides introduce themselves, and they are Gage Dunn and Elise Morgan. Welcome to the party bus. If you couldn't tell by all of the accessories, the rolling trays, ashtrays. Uh, you guys can smoke on here. Yeah, so riders were free to consume cannabis in any form they chose, but My420 Tours can't supply any product. The tourists can only use marijuana they brought themselves. And everyone apparently came prepared because in about five minutes that bus was filled with smoke. Shortly after that story aired, Denver cracked down on My420 Tours and another bus company, Colorado Cannabis Tours. Police cited employees and customers for public consumption. That led to court battles over whether these buses are considered public or private spaces. My420 Tours CEO Danny Schaefer told us he's hoping the new law will resolve things. We've got some premise to fall back on where we didn't have before, and I'm glad you know level minds prevailed in our previous dispute with the city. And I'm optimistic that you know the city and county of Denver will follow the state's lead, as they said they were lacking in the past. The state has now provided that clarity, so I'm optimistic that you know all major cities and counties will will take a real look at this, you know see the opportunity to to take advantage of it. And, you know, decide if it's right for their constituents and and local municipalities. If local city councils decide to implement the law, it would be okay to consume cannabis in public spaces like tasting rooms, tour buses and other hospitality spaces. Here's Schaefer again. The next step, obviously, is is rulemaking and really working through, you know, the implementation and regulations. I believe we have... Uh, kind of proven our ability and uh, to, to do this responsibly. So to get really some backing from the you know state and you know local governments so we can be treated and regulated like alcohol as our constitution requests is is super exciting for us and uh, really provides that basis for us to expand here locally and of course uh, nationally. Schaefer wants to branch out to other markets where recreational cannabis is legal. He hopes to help existing hospitality businesses around the world add cannabis experiences to their repertoire. I want the individual running a fly fishing tour in British Columbia to be a local fly fisherman from British Columbia. (laughs) We'll take care of the cannabis side and help them enhance it for their competitive advantage. But beyond that, it's really to provide the platform for other like-minded people that can help, you know, really spread the word, spread the positivity, spread the economic impacts as quickly as possible. Danny Schaefer, CEO of My420 Tours, a cannabis hospitality business based in Denver. He hopes to take advantage of a new state law that clears the way for public consumption of cannabis in tasting rooms and bus tours.
Drag Queen Storytime at Denver's Book Bar was interrupted last Thursday when a vandal spray-painted the storefront in what police determined was a bias-motivated crime. But Book Bar owner Nicole Sullivan is not intimidated and has a message for the detractors. Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon has the story. A couple days after the incident, Book Bar published its, quote, extremely official response to extremely negative comments on the store's blog. Skim the response a bit, and you'll find that the extremely official part is more tongue-in-cheek, as is the rest of the post. Aren't drag queens pedophiles? Drag queens don't equal pedophiles any more than bookstores equal libraries, or dogs equal cats, or ice cream equals hamburger. Get it? Got it? Good. That's Sullivan reading a portion of the post to Nine News. She told CPR her team decided that tone was the best fit for this situation. After this incident, there were articles on Nine News and then also the Denver Post. And in response to those articles, we just saw all of these comments coming in, plenty of really negative, nasty comments. And the ones that were negative were really negative. (laughs) And, you know, we slept on it for a night. The next morning, I got up and went for a long run. And I just was kind of letting this stew in my head. And I thought, you know... This just it will escalate if we take these comments and treat them seriously. And I thought, you know, their comments like these are so ridiculous that the only thing they deserve is a really equally ridiculous response. The comments haven't all been negative. The media attention about Drag Queen Storytime, a quarterly event when a drag queen reads to families at the bookstore, has given rise to an equal amount of support and encouragement even leading to an increase in sales, according to Sullivan. We had a family of four come in over the weekend, and they spent $400 with us because they read about what had happened, and they just wanted to lend their support and buy some books. We've had people come in and give cash donations. All of those cash donations we're turning around and donating to Rainbow Alley, which is a local organization that supports LGBTQ youth. The official response also included some book recommendations, which is to be predicted, you know, from a bookseller. The book recommendations were kind of second nature to us. They were really relevant to some of the comments that we were receiving. And I don't have a a lot of hope that the negative commenters are actually going to read the book suggestions, but I sure hope that they do. Sullivan says after hate stickers from a white supremacist group were plastered on book bars windows the day before the event, they asked for police presence Thursday. That allowed officers to make a speedy arrest when someone showed up and started spray painting graffiti on the bookstore during the event. Going forward, Sullivan plans to have many more drag queen story times without much change. The only thing that's probably going to change up is we're going to, you know, be a little bit more alert, like we were last time, and we'll just change up some of the books because some of the parents that heard them last time will want to hear some new stories. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. You learn a lot about a place when you cover it for 28 years. And that's what journalist Peter Roper has done in Pueblo. He just retired from the Chieftain newspaper. And we thought this was a good opportunity to pick his brain a little about life in southern Colorado. We asked Roper to meet us at one of his favorite hangouts. He chose DC's on B Street. Their tagline is, as good as it gets in Pueblo. Sarah? Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Come on over here. Thank you. 
Sarah Madrill, restaurant manager, knows what Peter likes, and she has some bad news. We are out of Rubens today. This restaurant has the best Rubens in Pueblo, and this is one of the... I may leave. Will you be offended if I get up and leave? You know it would hurt my feelings. She isn't the only one here who knows Roper. A former city councilwoman stops him to chat, and other folks wave from across the room. It's commonplace to walk in here on a, on a lunch day and, and find people having lunch that you wrote about in the paper. And usually it's all's well and good. Sometimes there's some hurt feelings and people are ignoring you <laughs> or talking loudly about what they didn't like in the paper. I asked Peter Roper to describe B Street, where his favorite restaurant's located. It's a side street off Historic Union Avenue, and it really is sort of the heart of Old Pueblo. You've got some wonderful old storefronts. You're right here across the street from Historic Union Depot, which was the railroad depot that served the town for many, many decades when we had passenger rail service here. Um, it's actually featured in the Hollywood film about Woodrow Wilson. They shot some scenes at it. Huh. But that depot, that train depot, that doesn't really operate anymore, does it? No, the rails do. Occasionally, um, a special train will come into town for some reason. I I remember a few years ago when some business executive, for one reason or another, uh, liked to have a personal rail car, and I can remember when they came to Pueblo and it was down here. But nothing regularly comes there anymore. Now, you didn't grow up in Pueblo, but your parents did, and you have a lot of family in the area. You covered a county commissioner's forum when you started at the Chieftain, which apparently speaks to what the community is like. Tell us about this forum. Well, it was interesting, Ryan, because I had just moved back to Pueblo from uh, six years of covering Congress in the White House in Washington. And I found myself at this county commissioner's forum out in Pueblo County High School. And one of the candidates running that year was a longtime well-known football coach here in the community. And Pueblo identifies very strongly with its high schools and high school sports. And I can remember when he went up to the microphone to make his pitch why voters should support him. He looked around this room that was fairly crowded. It was a pretty good-sized auditorium. And he said, you all know who I am, and I know who you are. Heck, I've seen most of you guys naked in the locker room. <laughs> and um, I re- that just struck me. And, of course, the audience burst out laughing. But I just thought, well, I'm not in Washington anymore. This is a whole different approach to politics. Yeah, and, of course, I think one particular blessing, but also challenge of covering news, you know, in a smaller community, is that there, it's all about relationships and yet vigorously covering a community. That's exactly right. Um, Pueblo people know each other. They know each other for generations, in fact. And, and sometimes some of their disagreements with each other can go back generations. So it's a very intimate town. There's 100,000 people here, but it functions a lot more like a much smaller community. And they take their politics very seriously. It, that's one of the reasons we do attract national figures is that um, we have a reputation for being a, you know, manufacturing democratic community. And so you'll see, I think President Obama was here four times. President Clinton here was here three or four times over the years. It's a place where they know they can get a big, enthusiastic crowd. They take their politics seriously. Yeah, I mean, Pueblo has been long known as a union town because of the steel mill history there. And the tendency is to think that that means they vote democratic. And yet Donald Trump won there. That's right. Is Pueblo becoming something of a Republican stronghold? No. 
what Pueblo is, is in fact a community of fairly conservative Democrats. And like Colorado as a whole now, you can sort of divide the electoral base into one-third Republican, one-third Democrat, and one-third unaffiliated. And those unaffiliateds make all the difference in the world from one election to another, which way they're going to go. In the last presidential race, they tipped the scales for Mr. Trump um, in Pueblo County. And in the in the, the recall election of 2013, where a Democratic state senator was recalled, I think they tipped the scales because they're fairly conservative on guns. So it's not that Pueblo has changed. It's just that it's a conservative kind of democratic community. It's This isn't Denver. This isn't Boulder. Um, you know, there, there's a conservative streak here that's always been here. Oh, lunch is here. What'd you get? This is a sandwich they call their TDF, which basically stands to die for. And it's a turkey sandwich with Pueblo chilies on top of it and provolone cheese and uh, and a spicy salsa. And the Pueblo chili, that great mild Pueblo chili. Pueblo chilies. Yeah. That's right. And then I really enjoy it. And so when I get a chance to put it on a sandwich, I usually order it. Well, I'll ask you to multitask here and talk and eat. Uh, I'm fascinated by the marijuana industry in Pueblo because th- this is one of the more recent stories you've followed. Talk about how... Uh, the legalization of marijuana has affected Pueblo in southern Colorado. Well, Pueblo, being a historic manufacturing town, of course, has struggled in past decades to try and find something to re- replace that big, robust steel mill that used to employ 10,000 people. Um, the mill's still there. It just doesn't employ near that number of people anymore. And since the legalization of marijuana, Pueblo County in particular, I think, has looked at that as a possible new growth industry. We we have more than 200 um, legal marijuana licenses in the county wow. um, for marijuana grows, stores, product infusion. I think it brings a different kind of set of problems to the community. From my own perspective, over the last five, six, seven years, I would tell you that it has helped bring homeless folks to Pueblo. We have without a doubt that our homeless population has grown significantly in the last five years. Last time I did a story about it, for example, um, the number of people in the public county jail who didn't have an address had more than tripled in the last few years. All right, Peter Roper, who's leaving the Pueblo Chieftain after many years there. Uh, the Chieftain was sold last year to Gatehouse Media. It's a big newspaper chain uh, that's shutting down local papers, laying off reporters... Talk about what that means for Pueblo, for Colorado. Well, Gatehouse took over the Chieftain a year ago. They're a big corporate owner, and they're replacing a family that had owned the newspaper for more than 100 years. Uh, Without a doubt, uh, as long as the Robert Rawlings family and, and the Frank Hogue family before them owned the Chieftain, uh, they took a very intimate interest in the town. It was it was their newspaper. It was their community. And, and whether you liked their politics or didn't like their politics, um, they were very conservative Republicans. For the most part, they wanted their newspaper to be vigorous. They wanted to cover the community. They saw it as a, an extension of themselves and the role they wanted to play. So Pueblo has had a long and intimate relationship with the chieftain. Um, I can tell you that uh, people feel completely entitled to call you first thing in the morning and, and gripe about something you wrote in the paper. Huh. And to suddenly have a corporate owner that is not engaged in that way, that is certainly more interested in, in the bottom line, is a huge change. The prevailing mood at the paper is that they're not investing in the product in the sense of staff and such the way that the Rawlingses did. 
And that's, I think it's kind of a discouraging environment for the staff, I know. Um, and I'm, I'm fearful it will, it will mean a, just an ever-growing estrangement with our community and the chieftain will become less relevant. And that can only mean bad things on both sides. Well, will you be sticking around Pueblo in retirement, Peter? Yes, I'll still be around. When I'm not doing journalism, I write novels, and I'm going to continue to do those. And I may try and keep my hand in now and then in reporting. I'd still like to do that. I, I still love it. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, enjoy that sandwich. Don't let me keep you any longer. Okay. Thank you. Brian, it was nice speaking with you. Indeed. Thanks, Peter. Ryan Warner speaking with journalist Peter Roper, who just retired from the Pueblo Chieftain after nearly three decades covering Southern Colorado for the paper. Roper took us to his favorite hangout, D.C.'s on B Street. Longmont and Boulder have been waiting for a train to Denver for so long that it's become a punchline for news anchors like Kyle Clark at Nine News. Countdown to RTD's Longmont train. It is only 11,154 days away at this point. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be here in a flash. RTD now says it won't fully open until at least 2050 unless they get more money. So CPR's Nathaniel Miner wanted to know, is it worth the wait and the cost? A decade ago, transit advocate Danny Katz was all about trains. He didn't even have to tell me that when we met for an interview. I even have a shirt that I'm wearing right now that just says, keep fast tracks on track. RTD's fast tracks was a 2004 ballot measure to expand transit across the Denver metro. So why stay stuck in the past when you can move smoothly into the future? Fast tracks. Voters said yes, and it raised billions of dollars. But the plan hit a snag when the economy tanked and costs went up. Many of the lines were finished, but not the one to Boulder and Longmont. Danny Katz runs the Colorado Public Interest Research Group, which pushed hard for that train. And he says, in spite of his love for trains, now maybe this one's a bad idea. While we told voters there'd be a Northwest Rail Line in their future, if there's actually a better transit service that we could be providing them in their future for this money, now is a pretty good time to consider that. Katz's reversal on trains puts him in an odd position. He now agrees with the group that fought the hardest against fast tracks in the first place, the Independence Institute. John Caldera leads the libertarian think tank. I asked him what he thought about that. It makes me wish that they said so when the tax increases were being proposed. Katz and Caldera still have major philosophical differences, but they both say that transit dollars should be spent in the most efficient way possible. Katz says RTD should run more express buses, like the existing line between Denver and Boulder. The Flatiron Flyer is just a great example of great transit. It's moving a lot of people along that corridor. Those buses use a toll lane that's open to private shuttles and van pools. Caldera says it's a win-win. When you build choo-choo tracks, it means only RTD can use them. When you build a bus lane, it means everyone can be part of the solution. RTD estimates a Boulder Longmont train would cost a billion and a half dollars. Meanwhile, the Flatiron Flyer bus line costs less than 200 million, and it already carries nearly 12,000 people every weekday. That's about three times the estimate for the train. Brian Paul Schroeder rides the bus most days from Denver to his job near Boulder. He says it's great until it's not. The other day uh, we were stuck in a lot of traffic and yeah, we had to just fight over to the shoulder lane and, you know, with all the merging traffic and anything, it was just a, you know, 20 minute additional delay. 
Schroeder really likes the sound of a train that can skip right by traffic, but it'll take at least another 30 years to happen, unless RTD raises more revenue. So I asked Schroeder... Would you vote to raise your own taxes to pay for that? It better run timely, and it better run often, and it better uh, open on time. RTD board member Judy Lubau acknowledges the agency doesn't have a great track record here, but she thinks the ridership estimate is low and that finishing the line is the right thing to do. Voters are still paying tax for it, and government has no right, in my opinion, when it makes a promise not to fulfill that obligation. It's very destructive to democracy. She often hears from frustrated constituents who are still waiting, and she says she'll keep fighting for them. One idea she's pushing is to start with limited service to Boulder and Longmont that would be cheaper and faster to build. I feel like we should put everything we have into making it happen. The RTD board recently recommitted to completing the entire Fast Tracks plan, including the Boulder and Longmont train. They'll need to decide which projects to do first and whether to try to raise more money. That discussion is scheduled for a meeting next week. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Danceable and mesmerizing Latin rhythms infuse Chris Bowers Castillo's music. The Denver-based artist grew up splitting time between Colorado and Chile, and it was in Chile that he began making folk music as Kiltro. It evolved from a solo project to a trio that creates vast musical soundscapes. Kiltro performs at Denver's Larimer Lounge on Saturday to celebrate the release of its debut album, Creatures of Habit. Chris and Kiltro bassist Will Parkhill join us now. Welcome. Thanks Hello. for having us. Hi. Chris, you were born in Colorado, but spent most of your summers in Chile growing up there. What was you, And that was where you first started playing music as Kiltro. How did the project start? Uh, it started when I was actually living in uh, Chile after. So it was I was in a town called Valparaíso for about four years. Um, and while I was there, I was doing a lot of just songwriting, or sometimes I would... Um, just do kind of well I was into this like ambient stuff I had just like a DAW logic I didn't have the pedals with me in the beginning so a lot of it in the in, in at the start was quite ambient and experimental and just kind of trying to create these these soundscapes and then there were certain folk elements that would emerge out of that from time to time so it's a very different project but um but yeah I was born there I was living there for um for some time and and was just inspired by the area and there was street dogs everywhere which is where the name Kiltro comes from um, it's a Chilean slang word for street dogs. Um, and it was just all kind of merged with the aesthetic. So. And I wonder, do you feel more at home here or in Chile? Um, well, I, I definitely feel more at home in Valparaíso. Um, that town, I mean, I love Denver, but that place was just kind of at my my speed and at my rhythm. And, and uh, I just I felt a certain kinship with that place that I never got anywhere else. And it may have been the people. It may have been just what I was interested in at the time. But... Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a wonderful city. If anyone wants to go visit South America, Valparaíso is a place to place to go. And um, you name 
You name Chilean folk singers Violeta Parra and Victor Jara as musical heroes, and those artists lived and died during politically turbulent times. What do you love about their music? Um, I love that it's very dynamic. I mean, the melodies are, are very melancholic, and they kind of have this, this I mean, just explosive just very dynamic melody. They go up and down. They have like this really just, it's a very strong emotive quality. It's just so kind of melancholic and yet upbeat. And that's what's sort of funny and interesting about it, I think, is like, you know, Cueca, Chilean Cueca has, has this quality of being um, everyone sitting around a fire and partaking and, you know, in, in each other's company. And it's, and it's meant Cueca to be a type danced to. Sorry? Is Cueca a type of music? Yes, sorry. Cueca is actually, it's a Chilean folk style. So it's, yeah, it's kind of the, the musical genre that, that emerged from Chile. Um, and, uh, yeah, so all these folk singers in the 50s and 60s were kind of taking the roots from Cueca. Um, they, it's where they have the, the two and the three on the beat. So it's like a three, four time, kind of like a waltz. Um, but the two and the three are accentuated. And it's just very dance-like. It's actually meant to emulate like a horse. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, but they would write these songs that were very melancholic and very emotional, but also kind of upbeat and sort of funny. And there's a lot of bands nowadays as well that have, um, I mean, from Chile that have a similar sort of thing or have expanded on that as well. So like a band called Chico Trujillo, they're from, I think, Via Alemana, which is right, just kind of near Valparaiso. I may be wrong about that. Um, but they play uh, music that's kind of like self-deprecating and funny. You know, you'll have these kind of uh, winding melodies. It's very rhythmic and perc- percussive. It's like cumbia. Um, and, uh, but the, the lyrics are, are kind of, you know, they're sort of sad and, 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 uh, and pained and, and, and funny. I mean, at the end of the day, they're sort of making fun of themselves, you know? So I guess like that was something that to me was really interesting about, and I hadn't heard in a lot of other genres. And some of our stuff, I think has a bit of that sort of reeling quality where, where it's sort of going all over the place and there's a kind of call and response with the percussion sections and, um, and the vocals and. Um, to be playful, but also sort of uh, emotionally poignant and, you know, uh, Hmm. I guess a bit melancholic possibly too. So there's a whole dichotomy of emotion. Um, Several members of your family grew up in Chile during the violent times that those artists sang about. What do you know about their experiences? Has that shaped your music at all? Like my own family? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, my mother was there during the coup, um, and she mentioned that... uh, well, I mean, she's definitely she's told me about the the transition. So Pinochet, of course, overthrew Allende, who was a democratically elected um, president. Although he was socialist, and um, there was a lot of uh, animosity in the country there, um, and also a lot of love for him. It was just very divided at the time. Um, and Pinochet was uh, backed by the CIA, actually, and they overthrew the government. And so um, that was a really critical moment in Chilean history. And a lot of people died. A lot of people were. Uh, taken a lot of you know bodies and rivers and um, people disappeared um, and my mom said you know on the day that it that it happened she you know they, they no one was allowed outside you had to send like one representative of every household to um, to this place to get rations you know to get like you know food and water um, and she said her mom would go out and come back with all the gossip of the town and she was the only one who ever wanted to, to do it because she wanted to get out and have the you know but um but yeah it was a very turbulent time um you know, there was a lot of stories of people just disappearing, and that was kind mm-hmm. of a part of life. There's a strict curfew as well. Um, so, yeah. And do you find that that influences your music? Um, I don't know that that those political experiences... I'm not sure that they directly influence my music personally, but I think that 
Uh, I do take my cue from, you know, a lot of musicians that, particularly Victor Cara. Violeta Parra wasn't alive anymore at that time, but he was actually killed um, on the day of the coup, or if not the day after. But mm. um, <clears throat> because he went out into the street and organized a kind of march, uh, and was they were taken to a stadium and he was killed, and it was actually really brutal and violent um, and very sad. Uh, and and I, th- I mean, I find those figures to be very inspiring, and I find him to be very inspiring. And um, I definitely think that that like being political, I think, is an important thing. I'm not sure that the music as it is now is expressly political in its message, but I think that the space it creates or the context in which it exists, I hope, has a kind of political dimension to it. And I do think as as we evolve and move forward, that um, that opens kind of more avenues for us to seize opportunities, not only just like in our community in order to use, you know, the band and the music and, and whatever momentum we gather to, to, to help groups and, and to be involved. Um, but also just in, in finding how to be, you know, to have a political voice in an artistic context. Sometimes I can feel heavy handed. So I'm still exploring all those options. This first effort is more of a series of stories. And, um, you know, it's like an experiment in building an aesthetic and allowing the songs to emerge out of that tapestry of sounds and and uh, and to make a kind of quasi-concept album without having a particular narrative or theme or, I mean, there's definitely themes, but no um, no particular storyline, I guess, in specific or mm-hmm. thing that we're arguing for. It's more about sort of building a particular world and, and situating the songs in that world. So I'm not sure if that answers yeah, the question. Yeah, no, but. it does. And Will, you joined Kiltrail last year. This is not your typical rock or folk band. So what's exciting about playing with Chris? Yeah, it means experimenting with all the different effects and possibilities of the musical technology that we have available to us. Um, It's very experimental in terms of the pedals we're using. um, And it feels like a a, a new blend. Uh, For example, I started uh, with my role in the band, pitch shifting a regular guitar down to occupy some place that existed between a bass and a guitar. Oh, interesting. So you're making it lower when you're pitch shifting. Exactly, yeah. And it just kind of felt like looking for places and spaces that didn't necessarily exist, but just felt natural to occupy that made this unique world, this unique sound. Yeah. So I never leave my love, I just don't want to be without. All of you disregard, I swear to God, it tears me all up. Kiltro played the song Hustle that we're listening to right now, and it's a version that's recorded in our performance studio. And during that studio session, you had nearly 50 guitar pedals and bass pedals between the two of you. Um, do you really use them all? Uh, yeah. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are tone pedals, which just means that I don't actually necessarily touch them during the during the performance, but what they do is they kind of change the sound. Um, I also use MIDI switching and loop switching, which just allows me to kind of program presets that make changes to a variety of pedals at the same time with a single kind of click of a switch. So um, I love pedals, and so I'll, I'll spend a lot of time just exploring them individually, and they're all very kind of catered to a sound that I like. Um, and in order to combine a bunch of them, you know, you have to kind of find your ways of doing that without having Because when I, when I first started, it was like a tap dance. I was like just hitting a ton of switches all at the same time, you know, the very uh, just in between sections and stuff. But now, um, yeah, now we've found a way that's a lot more streamlined. Um, and yeah, the effects are a huge part of it. They're part of that tapestry. Do I need you, my hope, my gun won't think, won't run my weathered eye. 
releasing this new album this weekend and it's called Creature of Habit. Mm-hmm. When you performed at CPR about a month ago, you spoke about how all the music on the album harkens to a place. What places come to mind when you listen to the record? Well, there's obviously the uh, city of, you know, origin for Chris for these songs, Valparaiso. Uh, there's also this imagined sort of, um, I don't know, dreamscape that exists in certain um, musical motifs that we play. Uh, some of the songs can almost sound like liquid. They can almost sound earthy. And um, we use those motifs and they recur throughout the music as place builders. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for having us. Chris Bowers Castillo and Will Parkill are members of Kiltro. The Denver band performs Saturday at Denver's Larimer Lounge to celebrate the release of the debut album Creatures of Habit. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Everything.